The Self and Its Sources, Reflections on Virginia Woolf's The Waves, by Gil Bailey, produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 2. The modern self exists because it inhabits a world lacking transcendence, a world in which the old sacrificial mechanisms for introducing transcendence have broken down. Without a real experience of transcendence, regardless of one's expressed belief, the self lives and moves and has its very being in the matrix of other people's desires, other people's attitudes and aspirations. Don Quixote looks to Amadeus de Gaulle as an external source of mediation. Hap Lohman looks to the merchandise manager as an internal source of mediation. The underground man looks at every person he meets, the, the army officer, his classmates, his servants, and is immediately entangled in ri- rivalrous and contemptuous and resentful relations. Now, I want to come back to this, of course, and I probably should not do it here, but in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I have come in the name of my Father, and you refuse to accept me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will accept him instantly. How can you believe, since you look to one another for approval and are not concerned with the approval that comes from God. Now, belief here is faith. It's not a belief in a set of a set of propositions. It's faith. How can you have faith, he says, if you look to one another for approval and are not concerned with the approval that comes from God? In the purest sense, The transcendentalizing force in Christian life is faith, enhanced by liturgy and sacrament. And I would say faith indistinguishable from prayer. Faith not to be confused with propositions, doctrinal propositions, but at the same time faith that could never be separated from prayer. Buber says the two things that march through human history are prayer and sacrifice. And the word sacrifice has been completely turned around in the course of uh, history. We now immediately, when we say sacrifice, we think of self-sacrifice, which is as it should be. The term sacrifice should not be eliminated. It's too central. We should only turn it around. And so now when we speak of sacrifice, something has to be sacrificed. And what has to be sacrificed is self. So Buber talks about prayer and sacrifice. He says the degeneration of the religions means the degeneration of prayer in them. And lacking the I-thou experience born of prayer Buber says, it becomes increasingly difficult for moderns to say thou with the whole undivided being. The self-sacrifice that's required is the self-sacrifice of Jesus who says, I do nothing except what the Father 
bids me to do. I simply live in absolute obedience to the Father's will. Or Paul, who says, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. These are the forms of self-sacrifice that are the that are the, the path to transcendence in our world. One of the things we're going to do, of course, is look at the novel. If we understood the novel, we would understand the modern self. They are part of one history. The modern self and the novel belong together. They begin with the Renaissance, the first novelistic, full-blown novelistic expression. You know, the novel is always in tension with the romances. The rom- Gerard points this out brilliantly. The romances, ex- the romances exploit the mimetic dynamic, but they never reveal it. The novel as novel, the definition of novel, you can tell a novel from another form, in that there's always at, li- at least a little bit of revelation in the novel. In other words, you can actually see the mechanism in the novel. In the romances, you never see it. It's all at play. It's all the romance is about. The romance is about nothing else but mimetic desire, the careening uh, you know, of mimetic desire, ricocheting of mimetic desire. That's what the romance is all about. And that's what the novel is all about, except the novel reveals the workings of mimetic desire and the romance does not. That's why the first novel is Don Quixote because of explicit revelation of mimetic desire. So understanding the novel is a way of understanding the modern self. And I think the modern self has been an attempt to enjoy the relative psychological poise and social autonomy that is born of a life of prayer and sacrifice. But to enjoy these benefits without the devotions that made them possible in the first place and that remains their only source of sustenance. So, I would propose something. I'm going back on something I said months ago, I guess, and that I've felt for years. For a long time, I've stayed away from the term soul because I feel it carries a lot of uh, Platonist baggage, you know, the, the Hellenist mystery cult tradition. But I'm now in a sort of a mood to go back to the idea of the soul for the following reason. The self is dying. These, by the way, these are just words. But there is something, I think, corresponds to these words. And the modern self is dying. Story, the history of the novel is the history of the modern self. And I think the modern self, in its novelistic representation, begins with Don Quixote and ends with the underground man and with Virginia Woolf's The Waves. Now, understand, I'm not talking in a literary sense. The novel may go on for 300 years. It may produce some masterful things. No doubt. But I think in some fundamental way, you could say it starts with Don Quixote and it ends with the underground man and with Virginia Woolf's The Way. It runs its course. 
and it and it charts the history of a self which ends in dissolution and so i think when we speak of the self in any modern context we presuppose a world of similar selves vying for the recognition of still other similar selves. In other words, it presupposes a world uh, in which the disease that the underground man and the characters in Virginia Woolf's The Waves have is epidemic. The self, as soon as you say the word, word self, you're aware of its existence vis-a-vis other selves. But if you say the word soul, there's none of that. What you have in the background of the word soul is a relationship with transcendence. And I feel now that is the only way out of the predicament we're in. And so I think it would be a helpful, even if it's you know, heuristic, it would be an, a helpful exercise. And I hear I am changing my mind. So I might change it again, you know. I mean, I don't know. But as I see it right now, I think it would be a very helpful exercise to speak of self and soul and to recognize that the self that we've been fussing over and that the philosophers are have been telling us now is dying for a while. Uh, and that there's no such thing anymore. They're right. They're right. And so we should look to the soul again. The self experiences itself as existentially independent and lacking transcendence. It must assert this independence vis-a-vis the others, almost all of whom, of course, are striving to assert the same thing. And so, like quicksand, the more the modern self tries to distinguish itself from others and claim its autonomy, the more it resembles the others who are trying to do the same thing. The soul experiences itself as existentially dependent. That's the great relief Augustine says, we are restless until we rest in thee. That's the great relief that the soul experiences, is dependence. The soul experiences itself as existentially dependent. And in proportion to the depth of that experience, the soul enjoys a relative social independence. Relative social independence. Not an autonomy, but it's that relative social independence born of the soul's experience of dependence that the modern world tried to exploit. The relative social independence we turned into this charade of autonomy. And that's the self that's dying. And, and that's causing social chaos in its death throes. And, that, and the autopsy of that self is on every page of Virginia Woolf's The Wave. 
and Dostoevsky's Underground Man. Last Monday was Martin Luther King Day, and I want to start out with a something from the biblical tradition, and I could go straight to the Gospel and to Augustine to get it, but Martin Luther King summed it up so well, I want to start with his summation of it, and then try to say something about what I'm trying to do right now, because in the course of the morning, no doubt, it will be easy to miss what it is I'm trying to do. So here's what Martin Luther King said. I say to you, seek God and discover God and make God a power in your life. St. Augustine was right. We were made for God and we will be restless until we find rest in those arms. Love yourself if that means rational, healthy, and moral self-interest. You are commanded to do that. That is the length of life. Love your neighbor as yourself. You are commanded to do that. That is the breadth of life. But never forget that there is a first and even greater commandment. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind. This is the height of life. And when you do this, you live the complete life. End quote. Now, you know, Paul said, and I've tried to underscore it, that to understand the gospel, you have to look to the cross. The cross is the eschatological turning point in human history. So we cannot uh, take the cross from its central place, structurally, in the gospel. On the other hand, if one were to say, well, how are we going to live? Does, does uh, the Jesus of the gospels tell us how to live? Well, Paul enumerates a number of things in his letters, of course. But also Jesus does too. He tells us certain th things about how to live, turn the other cheek and love your enemies and so on and so forth. And you would say, well, there was a, quite a bit of that. There's a lot of things. Is there anything central, really a touchstone for how to live? And most of us ask that question. We'd say, well, let's see, there's this and that. We think it over. Well, what? the truth is it couldn't be more clear. It's made absolutely explicit. Jesus says the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. It's perfectly clear and yet we hardly ever think of it, especially in these days, as being the heart and soul of the gospel. Because we've come to think, because we're part of our historical epoch, we think that Purpose, purpose of the gospel is to uh, is to have certain social effects and and so on and that's the second commandment love your neighbor as yourself that's absolutely there but the, the first one is still first and what I want to show is that it's first for profound reasons and for historical reasons and that it's it's possible to understand its primacy that is to say, if we understand its significance and its primacy, that doesn't mean that we will immediately become Christians or that we will, uh, that we will immediately begin to love God with all our hearts, minds, and souls. That's another, that's another thing. Maybe we will. Maybe we'll try to do that. But, the, but meanwhile, it's possible to make that commandment intelligible 
and to make its its uh, primacy in the gospel intelligible. And that's really what I would like to try to do uh, in, today and in the in the weeks following, using the various texts that we're going to be thinking about. So at a cultural level, and we've talked about this quite a bit, at a cultural level, the cross changes everything. This is what Paul says. The, the, the gospel, the life of Jesus, life and death of Jesus, changes everything, and the point of the change is the crucifixion. And based on a, an anthropological understanding of the crucifixion, we can begin to understand the spiritual implications and the historical and social implications of many of the gospel's admonitions. And I think this is an, an, another area in which we need to take our hat off to René Girard because I think he's helped us understand the centrality of the crucifixion and what it means by approaching it anthropologically. But once we see the centrality of the crucifixion, we realize that what Paul called the new anthropos, the new humanity, begins at the same scene where the old humanity began, namely at a scene where a victim is being uh, uh, murdered by a unanimous mob. And Gerard has shown that that's where culture itself begins. And so when Paul says, well, we have the old humanity that has come to an end with the crucifixion and the beginning of a new humanity, the new humanity, uh, in a sense, uh, is present at the same scene with which the old humanity began, but it sees the event from the point of view of the victim, and it begins to recognize the God that only the victim can recognize because the God of the victimized, the victimizers have fallen into the delusion generated by their own violence. And so what they see is, the, is some kind of demiurge generated out of, out of their craziness. So, love your enemy, turn the other cheek, forgive your persecutors. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. These are all become intelligible in the following way. The sacrificial system which preceded the crucifixion made it possible for us to ignore such injunctions with impunity. That is to say, there was still a system before the crucifixion which made it possible for us to resolve these social antagonisms sacrificial. There was a, sac there was a primitive religious structure that would intervene in, this, in human uh, social crisis and focus all the animosity on either on a, a, a common enemy in terms, in, in, in terms of a spontaneous scapegoating event or in, uh, onto some cathartic ritual which was a reenactment of a scapegoating event and restore order. But once, we, once the cross begins to demolish the sacrificial structures, then we increasingly have to, are forced to live without these sacrificial protections, in which case we can no longer engage in reciprocal violence or in envy and rivalry and recriminations and vengeance and all the rest of it with impunity.
because there's no system to come along afterwards and clean the whole mess up by focusing all our violence on one scapegoat or reconvene the community uh, ritualistically. In the poetics of the gospel, we're told that at the moment of the crucifixion, the veil of the sacrificial temple was rent in two. And we have to understand that temple, the chief function of that temple was the, the enormous rites of animal sacrifice, blood sacrifice, huge <coughs> rituals of blood sacrifice. And at the moment of the crucifixion in the poetics of the gospel, Matthew's gospel, the veil of the temple was rent in two. The, that which separated the sacred from the profane was torn away. And in another passage in the gospel, speaking of the demise of the temple, Jesus says there will come a day when there will not be one stone left on another. And I think we, we should understand this both poetically and anthropologically. The sacrificial arrangement which had, which had made human culture and human life as we know it possible was going to undergo a gradual deconstruction under the pressure of the revelation of the cross. And that means that the whole, all the hierarchical systems that the sacred, uh, sacrificial sacred put into place would begin to crumble. And there's even a hint of that in the, in the early passages in Matthew and Luke, both of whom quote Isaiah 40, where Isaiah says, Let every valley be filled in, every mountain and hill be laid low, every cliff made a plain, and the ridges a valley. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all mankind shall see it. Uh, again, we can take that, the poetics of that passage as a commentary on the, the hierarchies generated by the sacred system. They would all come tumbling down. The problem is, of course, that these hierarchies worked. They weren't invented by our primitive ancestors because our primitive ancestors were mean. They, ha they functioned. They brought humanity into being. Archaic religion provided its participants with what uh, Paul Tillich called an ultimate concern. It's very funny to use Paul Tillich in the context of any anthropological discussion because he was so... He was such a modern existentialist and a, such a philosophical thinker. But I want to employ his term, the ultimate concern, because I think it helps understand the role of transcendence in primitive religion. And it was transcendence that made possible human culture. And, and as Isaiah 40 intimates, that kind of transcendence is coming to an end. The transcendence that the, the system of sacrificial violence or or a sacrificial ritual was able to generate is now coming to an end. What the primitive sacred did for us is it gave us an ultimate concern that was outside the social venue. It provides us with an ultimate concern. You know, when Ronald Reagan uh, said, well, this is during the Cold War, he said, well, if the Martians were suddenly hovering in orbit about to attack us, the Cold War would be over instantly because we would join together in an attempt to ward off this threat. Structurally, that's identical to the way the primitive sacred works. 
the purpose of religion in the primitive world was to keep the sacred at bay but to keep it close enough so that it's it's ominous potentiality was always having beneficial effects on the social environment you see so that everybody was aware that the gods were peevish and uh, in need of their regular regular sacrifices and uh, ready to punish transgressors and so on and so forth so the the sacred the the purpose of the rituals and it, the adherence to the prohibitions and so on was to keep the sacred from intervening in the human world just exactly the way ronald reagan imagined that the, the the soviet empire and the american empire would behave if a martian attack was imminent now what i'm going to say is going to sound like a rationalist argument i don't mean it to be a rationalist argument what i'm trying to say is it's intelligible it's intelligible faith is never based on a rationalist argument but what i'm trying to do is to make the faith proclamation intelligible at the level of a social history and and psychological reality if we humans are going to live sanely and civilly not to say sanctified lives we must have what Tillich called an ultimate concern which is outside the social venue and when the gospel says you must love the lord your god with all your heart all your mind all your soul it's not it's not offering us a piece of piety for the few who want to you know say their prayers or their beads it is it is it is announcing something that is fundamental anthropological if we are going to have transcendence we cannot we humans are religious creatures we can we will not live without transcendence pa, uh, carl jung in that bbc interview in in the 50s said said uh, we humans will not forever tolerate a meaningless life we will not live without transcendence if you look around the world today what you see is people groping their way towards some kind of transcendence often in the in the regressive sense of trying to recreate some kind of primitive transcendence based on on ethnicity or some kind of some kind of hokey tribalism uh, or some kind of primitive religious impulse uh, but the the need for transcendence is very powerful in our world the, these crude attempts to reestablish some kind of primitive transcendence of course will not work they will not work but in the meanwhile they can make the social order hell on earth and lead people into terrible delusion so the question is is there another way of experiencing transcendence and i think that's where we have to begin to read the the greatest commandment and to recognize why it is the greatest commandment why it is the greatest commandment it's the greatest commandment because it's the essential thing both personally and historically and socially the often heard lament in our day is nothing sacred anymore and you hear that when you 
you know, people who are reading a headline or hearing a story in the press where something is, some terrible thing is happening and people say, oh, is there nothing sacred anymore? What is it we're hankering for? We're hankering for something that is a real taboo, that people will not cross that line. Something that approximates the primitive distinction between the sacred and the profane. Yes, on this side we can be pretty nasty and uh, pretty selfish and mean and so on, but there's a line finally and we won't cross that line. So people say there's nothing, they hear these stories, we hear these stories, that nothing sacred anymore. There's something very insightful about that, about that comment. Now I'll share with you something that the the University of Chicago social philosopher Lesek Kolakowski wrote not too long ago. He says, The quality of being sacred has been attributed to all those things which on pain of punishment were not to be meddled with. It thus extended to government, property, law, and human life. The sacredness of government was abolished by the fading of monarchical charisma that of property with the coming of socialist movements. These are forms of the sacred whose passing we do not, on the whole, tend to regret. The question arises, however, whether society can survive and provide a tolerable life for its members if the feeling of the sacred and indeed the phenomenon of the sacred itself vanish entirely. End quote. Well, of course, they are vanishing. And when uh, Kolakowski says uh, the sacredness of, of uh, government, the monarchy begins to fall apart, the sacredness of property, what he perhaps doesn't realize is that that's falling apart because of the biblical revelation. Sacredness itself, the idea of the sacred is collapsing not because the New Testament is out to eliminate the sacred, but because it is out to transform it from a sacrificial to a sacramental fact and experience. And that transformation is part and parcel of what Paul talked of as a transformation from the old Anthropos to the new Anthropos. And so when I go back here for a few minutes, go back to revisit instances of the primitive sacred, I'm, I'm, not, I'm only doing it so that we can appreciate how it worked and why it was there. And then I hope better appreciate how essential some kind of sacred transcendence is and how impossible it will it, it is from now on ever to invoke the primitive sacred for any extended period of time. And therefore, if we're going to uh, live sane and civil lives and, and potentially at least sanctified ones, we have to find another way of experiencing transcendence. So I'm going to uh, quote a number of things from the anthropological and social history area in order to better understand 
primitive sacred, the primitive transcendence, and then take a look at our situation. I quoted earlier from Fustel de Collange's The Ancient City. There's a passage in there. There are two, there are two sources I think are interesting. One is uh, Fustel and the other is Rudolf Otto. Uh, Fustel in the ancient city and Rudolf Otto in the idea of the holy both talk about the origins or the near origins of of archaic religion and neither of them actually uh, get to the heart of it the way Girard has nevertheless you know the, as was said about Kafka uh, great writers create their own precursors and I think in this regard Girard has created uh, Fustel and and Otto as, as his own precursors, in the sense that you can read their work better after having read Girard than you can otherwise. You have, it's like the Old and New Testament. You, 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 you have to read the later thing before you understand the, the thing that, that was leading to it. So Fustel says, for instance, trying to understand the origin of religion, he says, it was perhaps while looking upon the dead that man first conceived the idea of the supernatural and began to have a hope beyond what he saw. And what I'm trying to get at here is, here is Fustel's intuition about transcendence. Uh, back to Fustel. Death was the first mystery, and it placed man on a track of other mysteries. It raised his thoughts from the visible to the invisible, from the transitory to the eternal, from the human to the divine. And I, end quote, and I think Fustel is absolutely right there, the implication is absolutely right, that humanity as we know it must always have its thoughts raised from the visible to the invisible, from the transitory to the eternal, from the human to the divine. If we don't, we will pretty soon cease to be human in the fundamental sense. We will be, or at least let's put it this way, we will become bestial. We have to have something that will raise our thoughts from the visible to the invisible, from the transitory to the eternal, from the human to the divine. Now, Fustel says it must have been death. And he's, of course, half right. It was death. But death itself won't do it. What is it that arrests the mind and puts it in touch with something transcendent. Compare the death of Lincoln to the death of Jefferson. See, compare the death of Kennedy to the death of Eisenhower. They both died. They all died. What, which of those deaths gave became a, 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 a historical event in the history of the American people? those that died violently. It's violent death that does this. So if you replaced the corpse of the victim for the word the dead in Fustel's comment here, you would have the primal scene exactly. In other words, there's where transcendence comes in. That's when our primitive ancestors first had the experience of what Tillich calls an ultimate concern outside the social order. And Otto speaks of the emotional experience of this, which is not the kind of emotional experience that you will have in, in a, at a natural death. 
Otto says, in the English language, he's writing in German, he says, in the English language, the words that best uh, grasp the experience of the primitive sacred are the, Eng are the two English related English words, awe and awful. He said the first, the, the primitive religious experience is awe because what it's witnessing is awful. And uh, so Rudolf Otto uses the words religious dread to talk about the primary emotion that attended the discovery of religion for us human beings. And he says of religious dread, it is this feeling which emerging in the mind of primitive man forms the starting point for the entire religious development in history. So, our ancestors were religious not because they were pious, but because they were terrified. And I brought the story last time, of, uh, which I think is one of the best stories about how, how the religious primitive religion turns a social crisis into transcendence, which is the story, the uh, Toltec story of Tezcatlipoca. Very briefly, Tezcatlipoca, there's, a, there's an existing sacred system with the, the god king Quetzalcoatl at its peak, and everything is functioning nicely. Into that system comes a, a, a dazzling young stranger who plays the flute and who's very attractive and charismatic. And suddenly, the the ultimate concern becomes someone in the social milieu. And so instead of attending to these rituals that are taking place at the court of Quetzalcoatl, people drift off and find this character very fascinating. It's not yet, you know, People Magazine and MTV, but it's a little hint of modernity, if you'll... I'm trying to make the connection here. After a while, the crowd gathers around Tezcatlipoca, becomes frenzied, certain uh, it, violence breaks out, people are killed, and then lo and behold, the people realize they should kill Tezcatlipoca. They do. They build a tent. Then they realize he's a god because when, he, as, as, when they lynched him, they experienced a sudden social camaraderie at his lynching that wasn't there before. So he must have been a god because he, when he came, he sowed violence, and when he died, it all went away. Only gods can do that. They built a shrine to him so he could keep him away, that is to say, keep him appeased. And every year they sacrificed a human being to him. And they brought the human being into the, the social environment for one year. The human being was an attraction, a, a, a magnet for the mimetic fascination of everybody. He was taught to sit and smoke and dance and play the flute and do all those things and have these beautiful wives. Everybody, he was, as Shakespeare said of Hamlet, the observed of all observers. Totally fascinating. At the end of the year, he was marched up the steps of the temple and sacrificed. That's the transcendentalizing of mimetic desire. So that from, some, from, looking, from having an ultimate concern that's in the social environment, everybody had a social, uh, an ultimate concern which was outside that venue. And that's essential, that's essential to archaic uh, religion. So I want to fill out that picture a little bit so that we'll better understand it and then come back to the, to the, to the issue of the, of the greatest commandment. The sacred system comes into being as the crowd hovers over the body of its corpse in the original situation. 
all cultural structures are generated from that event, which seems like the most outrageous claim. This is one of Girard's claim, which claims which which uh, set so many people off. You can all culture begins to be generated at that moment, and you can read traces of it in the cultural uh, after effects. So what I'm going to do is go to a story from from Equatorial Africa in the 19th century, anthropological field study by a French anthropologist, Duchalou, and show how the sacred system is operating in 19th century culture and how it's easy to recognize its origin in sacrificial violence. And the purpose of all this is to show the, signif the, the social significance of some kind of transcendence, how our ancestors understood so well how important it was to have a sacred transcendence in their cultural system, that they could not exist without some kind of sacred transcendence. And I'm simply doing this to show that we're still in that situation, except we can't generate it the way they did. So here's what Duchelieu says about the succession of a new king on the death of the old king in one of these cultures in equatorial Africa. The elders meet for seven days and select who, the new king. He doesn't know it. Nobody else knows it, except uh, he's designated as he walks uh, one morning. But Duchelieu says in this particular case, he was walking one morning along the shore, and he suddenly was set upon by the entire population, who, quoting Duchelieu, who proceeded to to a ceremony which is preliminary to his crowning. They surround him in a dense crowd. They began to heap upon him every manner of abuse that the worst of mobs could imagine. They spat in his face. Some beat him with their fists. Some kicked him. Others threw disgusting objects at him. While those unlucky ones who stood on the outside and could reach the poor fellow only with their voices assiduously cursed him. A stranger wouldn't have, would not have given a cent for the life of him who was presently to be crowned. Then all became silent. This is the moment of transfiguration. All became silent. And the elders of the people rose and said solemnly, and the people repeated after them, Now we choose you for our king. We engage to listen to you and to obey you. He was then dressed in a red gown and received the greatest marks of respect from all who had just now abused him. And then we find out later that seven years after that, at the Harvest Festival, he was sacrificed. In other words, as the mob's fascination begins to focus on the victim, even before they actually kill the victim, they begin the process of divinization. They begin by thinking, this is not a mere human. This is a superhuman. Now, maybe the superhumanness of this victim will have a positive or negative spin. Almost always has a negative spin. That's why they're trying to kill him. But it's the fact of his superhumanness that begins to take hold of the mob. Obviously, this is not some ordinary person. This is some, in a medieval witch hunt, you know, this is a witch who has extraordinary powers. 
you see, or a warlock who's been blighting our crops. So there's something superhuman. In other words, the victim begins to, be, uh, to, to acquire prestige even before he's sacrificed. Now, if the denouement, if the climax, the sacrificial climax can be postponed, for as long as it's postponed, the victim can accumulate prestige in the eyes of those who are about to victimize him. At a certain point in this process, it's possible for the victim to have so much prestige that he can postpone the sacrifice for some time. Or even when, it's, when it does come to its denouement, select a surrogate victim to die in his place. And there's lots of anthropological data to confirm that scenario about the birth of kingship. The king, Girard says, is the victim with a suspended sentence. And the anthro anthropology bears it out. And this story bears it out. How do, you, how do you crown a king? What is the ritual, coronation ritual? They, they, they mob him, beat him, spit upon him. And we Westerners, you know, a hundred years ago would say, oh, well, you see, that's just because they're really going to revere him. And this is a kind of a, you know, a little Mardi Gras or something they're having here. Well, Mardi Gras is the same thing, really. Mardi Gras is a, is a little echo of the same thing. Uh, but it's not some... It's, it's fundamental. It's an echo of the primal scene. Sacrifice is the mechanism for turning violence into religious awe and political power. It endows the victim with enormous prestige, either before or after he's dead. If he dies, he's a god. If he stays alive, he's a king. It's the, it, that's the birth of primitive sacrality. The king is a sacred figure. The king in the primitive situation is not, a, is not a king in the sense that we think of just a king. He's the king, the priest, the shaman, the, the god on earth, you know. It's the primitive sacred. If he lives, he's the king. If he dies, he's a god. Well, there's another instance of this which shows even more the mimetic aspect of it, which again comes from... Uh, uh, field research done in, in, in Africa. And again, it has to do with a newly elected king. Uh, quoting from the original field researchers, the, a newly elected king was made to run three times around a mound, and while doing so, he was buffeted by the dignitaries. On a later occasion, he had to kill a slave. Uh, or sometimes only wound him, in which case someone else would kill the man with the king's spear and knife. Now, the killing of the slave, of course, is the, sur is the offering of a surrogate victim in his own stead. You see, it was necessary to the, to the coronation ritual that the would-be king gets buffeted, but here it's a little more refined. He's just sort of, there's just a hint of it, you know. Uh, but, but then he's, a, allowed, he's, he's required to kill a slave. There's, nothing, there's no hint there. That's the thing itself. It's a surrogate victim. And then the, the anthropologist goes on. If the king proved his worth, he would in earlier times rule for seven years and then be killed at the harvest festival. In other words, his reign is an extended sacrificial ritual. The sacrificial ritual doesn't end with his coronation. The coronation is simply, it freezes the sacrificial ritual for seven years. And seven years later, like kissing Sleeping Beauty, the ritual proceeds to its climax. And during that period of time, the king 
has sacred prestige, and the world in, over which he presides requires sacred prestige in order for it to stay orderly. It needs him. Now, does it need, does it need him because they love him? Well, hold on, I'll show you that in a minute. But now, here it has, we get a hint of the mimetic factor here. Physical, according again the anthropologist, physical manifestations such as coughing, sneezing, or blowing the nose, the king, are imitated or applauded. Now, one of the things, this is, it's kind of, all these things are a little hard to sort out, but, you know, one of the things about a sacred figure is that you, it's a little, it's a little off-putting when you see a sacred figure doing things that are a clear indication of his humanity and his mortality. You see what I mean? Even in, even in that uh, Quetzalcoatl thing, you know, Tezcatlipoca comes along when Quetzalcoatl is an old god-king. And uh, the myth about Quetzalcoatl is that he's immortal. But clearly, you know, he's becoming an old man and his immortality is becoming increasingly difficult. You know, its plausibility is fading rapidly. So this is part of the problem with the sacred. So now there's the king. So when he sneezes or blows his nose, everybody uh, imitates what he does or else applauds it. It's a, it's a kind of nervous twitch. If you could, it's like the tribe realizing that something's going on is not supposed to be going on. And this is an anthropologist, Vesterman, who, who has an, some interesting things to say. He says, Whatever good or bad traits a king possessed, whatever his vices, virtues, faults, or bodily defects, his companions and servants were at pains to imitate them. If the king was lame, his companions limped. At the court of Uganda, if the king laughed, everyone laughed. If he sneezed, everyone sneezed. Okay, now this, are kind of, this is kind of fun in a way. It's, it seems irrelevant to the question of the greatest commandment, but it's not. So uh, going back to Vesterman, he comments again on a rainmaker kingship in... Uh, in the the Nile region. By the way, I'm fortunate enough to have a good friend who's who has done some field research in this same area in the 1980s. It's still true. It's still true. He just came out with his book about three years ago. It's an unbelievable thing. It really is an unbelievable thing. Unfortunately, his book cost eighty dollars. <laughs> uh, so here's what Vesterman says in 19th century. This is about the king in one of these rainmaker king cultures. <coughs> he is never visible or only at certain times. He must never leave his palace enclosure or only at night or on special occasions. He is never seen to eat or drink. You see that? He has to be transcendent. The crucial thing about the king is his uniqueness. A people which may have many gods has only one king. It is important that he should be isolated an artificial distance is created between him and his subjects and is ma maintained at all possible costs. I'm going back now to uh, some observations by uh, Dujalu, this guy I've quoted the first time. And this is the last one of these. This is another culture in Nigeria. The king, but it's an echo of what I just quoted up here. The king rarely appeared in public. His naked foot must never touch the ground. For if it did, the crops would be blasted. He was also forbidden to pick up anything from the ground. 
You see the sacred and the profane here? Absolute need to keep... Now, when the anthropologists went in, Western anthropologists went in the 19th century, they thought it's a little hangover from the, the, you know, the, some of those Enlightenment ideas. They thought, well, these people, they have such affection for their king, you know. They don't want him to stoop over. Or they, they want him to, you know what I mean? The idea that uh, this was based on affection, well, it's shattered in the next sentence of Duchalou's uh, commentary. He says he was not allowed to, to, to uh, touch the ground or pick up anything from the ground. If he fell off his horse, he was promptly put to death. <laughs> so we're not talking affection. <laughs> uh, it might never be said that he was ill. If he did contract any serious illness, he was quietly strangled. He was believed to be in control of the winds and the rain. A succession of droughts and bad harvest indicated the waning of his strength, and he was secretly strangled by night. What is the king? He's the sacred icon that represents for them this, the Martians. He represents for them what the Martians represented in Ronald Reagan's fantasy. This figure, all-powerful figure, toward whom all of us have to direct our primary attention in making sure that his beneficence was coming our way and that his wrath was turned away. And since we all had that primary concern, the little things that we had going on between us were, were minor and uh, could easily overridden in the face of this great concern. Uh, but clearly it wasn't affection for the king. There are cultures, I think I've quoted them in the past here, there are cultures, out of the same Kennedy volume, which is so rich and uh, it's rich a resource, there are, there are several uh, examples where the, where the elders come to select a king and they, you know, they tap the, the, the successor and his clan immediately rises up and fights them. They say, no, you're not going to take one of our guys and make him king. And then later it becomes ritualized. So that they have, a, so that part of the coronation ritual is the family of the uh, of the successor making some stylized uh, objection, which is then overruled and so on, and it goes on. But clearly, in the original instance, being selected king, you know, they had to chase Saul down in the Bible. They had to chase Saul down when when he when he was chosen to be king. He ran, and uh, there's that's anthropologically sound. Okay, this whole system only works if the fundamental misrecognition that it's based on remains in place. In other words, they can't, signs of his true humanity must not come through because then the whole game is up. He's just one of us, after all. The system of misrecognition on which the sacrificial system is based is exploded at the crucifixion. And we are invited to see that scene from the point of view of its victim and to see the God whom the victim recognizes and whom the mob cannot see for it is the God that is eclipsed by the, the phantasm of generated by collective violence. Okay, so we've been through this before. 
as the paraclete, to, to use biblical language, as the paraclete begins to drive this point home in human history, those cultures that have fallen under the influence of the biblical revelation begin to, their own, the myths and rituals and, and, and apparatus of the, of the conventional sacred begin to collapse. And there comes a point in that collapse when it becomes historically notable. And because we're going to turn to novels here next week, a novel at least, uh, I'm intrigued to think we might look to the very beginnings of the 17th century as a moment when it becomes noticeable. At the beginning of the 17th century, Shakespeare's writing his greatest plays. Cervantes has written Don Quixote. And Charles I, last time I said Charles II was beheaded, you know, it wasn't Charles II, it was Charles I, in 1649 in England. These are, I think, symptoms of modernity, early symptoms of modernity. Interesting, uh, one of the interesting ones from the point of view of what we're going to be doing is Cervantes' Don Quixote, which is as many people feel, the first real novel. And maybe I'll come back to that in a second. But clearly, sacrality is on the wane. And with it, not only are we, you know, not only are monarchies in peril, but uh, the whole sacred system is in peril, and slowly but surely, the uh, transcendence itself. We enter into a detranscendentalizing epoch where the proper study of mankind is man, where we become fascinated only with the human order and uh, we begin to lose the experience of transcendence because we are losing the old sacrificial mechanisms for generating it they are beginning to have uh, less power. I used the term last time, the soul and the self, to try to make a differentiation. And I think that's going to be helpful. I'm going to stay with it. But I don't want to overdo it. Uh, but I'll, I'll invoke it here. Uh, the, at the personal level, the journey of the soul through life was slowly becoming the experience of the self. A self like Don Quixote, which was increasingly prone to emulate not God or Christ or the Christ-likeness of the saints, but other mere humans. Historically, we're undergoing a detranscendentalizing of human experience. I wish I could get at least one of those syllables out of that word. Two would be even better, but I can't think of it. The Hebrew prophets understood this perfectly well. Uh, we will we will either worship God or create idols. There's no two ways about it. We will either worship God or create idols. And uh, so we will have an object of ultimate concern. And the question is, who's it going to be? And Kierkegaard is the one who announced the, the, the real onset of this historical development when he... Uh, his little book about the modern age when he said resentment is the constituent principle of the modern age. Resentment is simply the product of the mimetic entanglements. Rivalry, envy, jealousy, 
contention, and so on. And uh, Kierkegaard says it, resentment happens when the world moves from the happy love of admiration to the unhappy love of envy. And the analysis that Girard would analyze that, I think, in terms of the, of the falling into the social order of the object of one's ultimate concern. If I can, I can admire, the happy love of admiration requires that the object of my admiration not be in competition with me for social prestige or wealth or fame or what, you know, all, whatever it is we compete for. In, in order for that happy admiration to remain happy over extended period of time, uh, that object of admiration must not be a social competitor of mine. And Kierkegaard says we're entering a world where, where, the, where increasingly everybody's object of admiration is moving into the same social arena as the observer himself. And therefore, it's turning into envy. And therefore, that's modernity. That's Kierkegaard's analysis of modernity. And the novel, I would say... Now, see, what are we talking about? Anthropology or the novel or the social crisis or uh, loving God with your whole heart, mind, and soul? All these things come together. This is why it makes my work awfully difficult. But it also makes it interesting. At least it's... I don't always make it interesting when I present it here, but I think it fundamentally is. Take my word for it. <laughs> anyway, so the novel, I want to see the no I think the novel is, and I want us to treat it this way, I think the novel is a chronicle of the collapse of the system of sacred transcendence and the mounting incidents of internal mediation that has accompanied it. You know, internal mediation, I think I maybe mentioned this earlier, is Girard's way of talking about the situation that Kierkegaard describes here, namely where the, the, the admired one, the model, is in the same social uh, milieu with the, the imitator, and therefore the, the act of imitation ceases to be admiration and becomes envy and rivalry and jealousy and so on. That's in what Girard calls internal mediation, as opposed to external mediation, which where the model is outside the social scene and therefore uh, is never considered to be uh, a, a rival. I said Shakespeare is writing at the beginning of the 17th century at the same time that, uh, that Cervantes is writing Don Quixote, the first novel. Shakespeare is writing the great plays in which he... In which he depicts precisely what Kierkegaard was talking about uh, two centuries later, two and a half centuries later, namely the, the transformation from the happy love of admiration to unhappy love of envy. Every Sha I would say this, every Shakespeare play is about that. Uh, you know, Girard's master work on Shakespeare the title of it is The Theater of Envy. And that's what Shakespeare's all about. And there's no better summation of this process, I think, than that put in the mouth of uh, Ulysses in Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida. Now, things are going to hell for the, for the Greeks, and the Greeks are trying to figure out what's going on, and 
they ask Ulysses, who's this sort of clever, always the clever one among them, and he says, the problem is that we have a, we have, all the distinctions are falling apart. The fundamental distinction, of course, is between the sacred and the profane. And as soon as it falls, all fall. So now we live in a world where, name a distinction that's, that's fundamental. Fundamental distinction. There aren't any. There aren't any. Everything is falling apart. So, so Ulysses says the problem is all our distinctions are crumbling. And here's what happens when they crumble. He says, take degree away. For Shakespeare, the word degree means the same as what we mean by distinction. Matter of fact, when Girard invokes this, he will use the word the crisis of distinctions, which is the modern crisis, and the crisis of degree. The Shakespearean term means the same thing. That's what, when we say, is nothing sacred anymore, we mean there's no clear boundaries, finally, that keep us, you know, that, that keep things reassured and in some kind of order. And Ulysses says, take degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. Each thing meets in mere opugnancy. Now that correlates perfectly with this thing from Pascal, which I used last time, which is, uh, Pascal says, Whom will we choose as a ruler of the state? The most virtuous and able man? That would set us straight away at daggers drawn, with everyone claiming to be the most virtuous and able. Let us attach this qualification to something incontrovertible. That is to say, to the king's eldest son, for instance. Anything, anything other than something that's up for grabs because if it's up for grabs we everybody will be grabbing and you'll have social chaos and that's what Ulysses is talking about here precisely that and Pascal was writing at about the same time I don't know what his dates are but essentially the same time that Shakespeare was writing Ulysses you see it's we're the great visionaries were seeing what was going on we think it's just been happening since, uh, you know, the 1960s. <laughs> so uh, Ulysses says, take but degree away and each thing meets in mere repugnancy. The bounded waters should lift their bosoms higher than the shores and make a sop of all this solid globe. Everything is dissolved. Strength should be lord of imbecility and the rude son should strike his father dead. Force should be right, or rather right and wrong between whose endless jar justice resides should lose their names, and so should justice too. Then everything include itself in power, power into will, will into appetite, and appetite, a universal wolf, so doubly seconded with will and power, must make perforce a universal prey, and last, eat up himself. It's really apocalyptic. It's really apocalyptic. And then Ulysses says, And this neglection of degree it is that by a pace goes backward with a purpose it hath to climb. The generals disdained by him one step below, he by the next, that next by him beneath. So every step, exampled by the first pace that is sick of his superior, grows to an envious fever of pale and bloodless emulation. I mean, it's, 
if we were to parse this speech, it would just be an incredible revelation. It's better than first-hand anthropology. It's better than field research, and this is what great literary geniuses offer us. We have been experiencing the, a, a leveling. Everybody talks about the leveling, the social leveling that's going on. But the leveling is an inevitable product of the biblical revelation. Isaiah 40. The mountains shall be laid low and the valleys raised up. That can only take place without catastrophe in a world that has discovered another way of experiencing transcendence. And therein lies the greatness of the greatest commandment and its absolute centrality. And the and I, I, I think the world will come some, you know, 300, 5,000 years, I don't know, from now, the world will hit itself in the forehead and say, why didn't we see that? Why didn't we see? And there it was in black and white, the greatest commandment. And they will look back on the 20th century who regarded any statement with the word commandment in it as anathema, as being lost. <laughs> okay, well. As we experience the detranscendentalizing of the world, we fall into the social swamp where all of where where's brewed all of the the impulses that primitive religion saved us from. The all the social crisis that primitive religion existed to ward off returned because the primitive structures have gone. And so we're stuck with the crisis that, that preceded them and led to them. And we're also stuck with the impulse to reinvoke the primitive sacred. And this is happening everywhere. There's a tremendous reinvocation of the primitive sacred going on in our world. It doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell of succeeding, but it has a perfectly good chance of becoming hell on earth as it tries. And I wanted to bring something in from the French Revolution, which continues to be sort of paradigmatic for our age. And it comes from H.G. Wells. Now, H.G. Wells is not, the, is not regarded as a great historian, but he's a pretty good, lively writer, and, and, and I, perversely enough, read his History of the World, or whatever it's called. And he treats the French Revolution very interestingly. He was a, he, he's a kind of supporter of it in a way, you know, but uh, he's, he saw its perversities as well. And so he says this, you know, there comes a point in the French Revolution when they, when they decide to start uh, executing the, uh, the loyalist. And Wells says, nothing could have better pleased the fierce hearts of the Paris slums. The Revolutionary Tribunal went to work and, and a steady slaughtering began. The invention of the guillotine was opportune to this mood. The queen was guillotined, and most of Robespierre's antagonists were guillotined. Atheists who argued that there was no supreme being were guillotined. Danton was guillotined because he thought there was too much guillotine. Day by day, week by week, this infernal machine chopped off heads and more heads and more. And we have to understand the anthropology of this event. The reign, back to Wells, the reign of Robespierre lived, it seemed, on blood and needed more and more 
as an opium taker needs more and more opium. Now, remember, Caiaphas said, it's better that one should die than that the whole nation should be destroyed. When the sacrificial system works, it is extremely economical with its violence. And it's extremely economical for its violence because everybody believes the myth that justifies the violence, not only at the moment it's performed, but thereafter as well. And we live in a world in which for centuries and centuries we have been invited to empathize with the crucified Christ. And under that circumstance, we simply can't uh, live under the purview of the sacrificial myth long enough for it to have sustainable social benefit. So notice this. Caiaphas says it's better that one should die than the whole nation should be destroyed. When we, when we get to the end of the 18th century, we have the guillotines going wildly, and now it is the reign of Robespierre lived on blood and needed more and more as an opium taker needs more and more opium. And in a certain way, you know, in a perverse way, uh, Marx is right. Religion is the opium of the people. Primitive religion has become an opiate in the sense that one has to have more and more because it's falling apart. And there comes a point in the French Revolution when Robespierre and the other leaders of the revolution began to realize that uh, this really must be God's work because... Uh, dot, 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 but just that it had to be God's work. And then they had to figure out how it was going to be God's work because part of the rationale of the revolution was to get rid of religion. But all of a sudden now, it has to be God's work. And so they have now the revolutionaries have a little internal squabble about exactly how to articulate the fact that this is God's work we're doing. <clears throat> so Wells gets to the heart of this one too. He says, there was a proposal from one extremist group to abolish God among the other institutions altogether and to substitute the worship of reason. There was indeed a feast of reason in the cathedral of Notre Dame with a pretty actress as the goddess of reason. But against this, Robespierre set his face. So he guillotined a bear who had celebrated the feast of reason along with all his party. 